long trips are out of the question, be it family commitments or work or maybe even the pandemic. But if you can ride locally, you still have a shot at having an incredible adventure. Today, we've got Tom Rick. Tom spent all summer exploring with a purpose and he was never late for work on Monday. As a matter of fact, he never left his home state. After that, we have adventure motorcycle aficionado, Dr. Greg Fraser. He's circled the world six times, almost by accident. We've got stories, lessons, and he has a new book that will make you laugh, shake your head and say, WTF. All that coming up on this episode. My name is Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Before we get started, I want to thank these fine companies that helped get this episode out today. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters, cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear, greenchiliadv.com. are traveling by motorcycle right now or any means for that matter but as long as you can ride your bike locally you can still have some amazing adventures take tom rick who i'm going to speak with next tom is an avid rider he's been riding for many years and he's looking for something to do but he's got limited time because well work gets in the way his words not mine and um, he had to work an adventure around his schedule for work. And he, and he used his off time in the wintertime when it's snowy to plan this incredible adventure that he's done. So this is Tom Rick. I'm from Rochester, Minnesota, and I'm an exercise specialist. Tom, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks so much for having me back, Jim. It's such a true pleasure. So this trip that we're about to talk about, um, this series, really, it's a series of trips all in your home state. What got you uh, thinking about, what got you planning a trip like this? Well, um, as you know, you, you're living in the north too as well, and people at any any place that you get a bunch of snow, um, you have kind of grand visions of the upcoming riding season that kind of float through your head as you're staring out at all the white stuff coming down. And so that's really where a lot of this uh, kind of ride planning came from was just sitting around in the middle of winter think, thinking to myself, you know, how am I going to get out and enjoy all the summer days that will eventually come? Well, and so what you ended up doing, what you told me was, is that is basically this story about a crazy guy who's ridden every single highway in his home state. Now, this is quite interesting because as we're in a time right now where there's not a lot of, well, I guess there's no international travel at this point that we're talking right now uh, to speak of. And certainly for motorcycles, you're not going to be putting your bike on a plane and things like that. People are starting to look more to their backyard and saying, what can I do? And now somebody might look at this and think, well, so what? Why would you want to ride every single highway in your home state? So what was your motivation? 
Well, you know, it was a combination of winter, but at the same time, I was also thinking about attempting to compete in the, the BMW owners group essentially has a mileage contest every single year. And so I thought, well, gee, it'd be a lot of fun. You know, I kind of was looking at my work schedule and where I was going to travel and thinking to myself, well, you know, maybe I can try to, to place really well. At the same time, I also looked at my bank account and I looked at kind of my storage of wife points and that was a little bit lower. So I thought to myself, well, I can't get really far away from home, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks on end. I have to make sure that I've got, you know, comfortable overnight accommodations and something that's relatively inexpensive. And, you know, probably like a lot of your listeners, I spent a majority of my life kind of thinking, I can't wait to get out of Minnesota. It's so boring around here. I want to travel out west or I want to go to different countries, experience all of that culture and really kind of wrote off, you know, Minnesota and kind of my riding area as I've seen it all. This is boring. So what what exactly did you plan to do? Did you, did you sit down with a map? And look at it and say, this is the route that I'm going to take? Well, I did. You know, the, those things that, you know, like your grandparents used to use, Jim, those, those paper maps are still around. <laughs> I've seen those, yeah. And uh, <laughs> I okay. actually still like them, Tom. I, I, I think to okay. me, that's, that's the, um, I, I always say, and I, I've said this many times in the show, that lo- looking at your GPS is, is sort of like looking at the world through a straw. The map is like, the, that's the dreamscape right there when you open it up and spread it out and look at it on your table. That, that's where the, you can really dream. I agree with you. You know, the tiny screen is really wonderful and it's taking me some, to some amazing places. But having that ability to to really kind of see the grand overview of where you're going to go, where you're going to go to next, and then find those little things on the map, um, I think is is much easier, at least in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, to, it's to perspective, see. isn't it? It puts it in perspective you because you, otherwise you're just looking at that one spot you're in. But uh, But anyway, so you sat down with the map. I did. And then I started kind of looking at, okay, where have I been before? Where do I want to go? And then I kind of started to look at, well, um, I remember at the same time, another kind of little challenge that had come up in in some of the long distance riding communities was to take a picture of entrance signs at various states. And so I thought, well, I wonder how many entrance signs that Minnesota has. They've got, you know, little signs on smaller roads that are maybe a meter by half a meter, um, all the way up to these kind of grand statues that essentially say, welcome to Minnesota. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. So, you know, I did a little bit of Googling and and realized that there was actually 64 different signs throughout the state of Minnesota. How'd you find them on Google? Well, you know, it linked to the the uh, Department of Natural Resources for Minnesota, and then they kind of went a little bit deeper. And eventually, I found out that there, that where these all these locations were, mm. Minnesota has a, a nice little kind of map, and and really the history behind each one of these kind of um, you know kind of state markers. Oh wow! I didn't realize there's actually going to be a history behind this as well. Yeah. Um, if I remember it correctly, it was started in the early kind of 1920s um, and then kind of evolved all the way to the point where in the late 90s, the uh, Minnesota state actually decided to do a contest because they were looking for new, um, you know, kind of ways to mark some of, of these highways. And, and uh, a design was kind of submitted that includes kind of the three, for lack of better terms, kind of areas of Minnesota from kind of prairie to hardwoods to what we call the driftless area down where I'm at. So it's kind of neat to to see all of those. So you're talking about signs, though, that are just when you cross the state line and, and come to Minnesota, right? Yep, okay. yep. Okay, now you you just briefly said about the the different uh, the makeup uh, of Minnesota. Can you can you get a little more detail on that? Sure. So you know, again, I always thought to myself, 
you know, living in Southern Minnesota for a majority of my life. Okay. All up North is, you know, kind of forest and all down South is pretty much farming community. Not much really, you know, drastically different, but, uh, Minnesota's kind of has almost like three layers to itself that run a little bit kind of North to South. And if, if you go to the website, you can see what they call the major entrance monument actually has those kind of three different areas. So in the northeast corner of the state is a lot of hardwood forest. It's a lot of old growth hardwood forest. And then you've got a ribbon in kind of the middle um, that is kind of this definition between the two. And then as you get kind of towards the western part of the state, it really opens up to more prairie and it becomes a little bit more grassland area. And then the area that I live in, in southeastern Minnesota, is known as the Driftless Area. And that is essentially where the glaciers didn't quite make it down um, from Canada. And that provides a lot of great roads that are really twisty, windy. It's got a lot of nice kind of uh, low hills and valleys. Mm, so hills and valleys because they, they weren't carved out by the glaciers. Correct. Yep. The glaciers mm. didn't kind of smooth that all out. So it makes for some great riding. Right. Well, and of course, that's what they say with the glaciers is that they scraped off Canada and they put all the interesting stuff down there for you guys. You got it. We're appreciative of that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> so you've got a diverse state, probably more diverse than, than what you'd really realize. Like you said, you're sort of growing up thinking one thing, but you're finding something different as you ride. Now, how did you come up with a route? How are you going to attack this? Sure. So <laughs> I basically, I, I laid down the map and I started to think to myself, how can I link these all together? And I, I was very fortunate that a lot of the Mondays throughout the summer that I was planning this trip. So I started to think, okay, I can probably get maybe four or 500 miles away from, from, you know, where I live in Rochester. And then is there a state park that's relatively close that I can camp at? And in, in Minnesota, we're blessed to have a great state park system. It's relatively inexpensive to, to get admittance and camping itself is relatively cheap too. So I started to link, okay, I could ride four or 500 miles kind of in this kind of half square. I'll stay at this state park and then I'll finish off the square with my other kind of location back at home. And so I just kind of started to chew off each little individual squares, trying to link things and layer them over and over on themselves. And now it's much easier to do that, you know, kind of in that prairie land because a lot of it's, you know, detailed by squares and rectangles from farming. So, you know, you go to a county and everything's kind of laid out north, south, east and west. But as you get closer to the northeast and to the area that I live in, things become a little bit more curvy. And I ended up doing lots of backtracking in those particular areas to pick up different highway sections. So you're going from your, your home and you're sort of doing like a wagon wheel type thing. Like one adventure takes you like one way and then you come back home and then you set off on another one. You got it. Yep. Mm. That four letter word called work is uh, the oh, things that really interrupted me that's horrible, throughout the it? week. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, what are you riding? So I had three different motorcycles actually at the time, um, three different BMWs, and I really tried to select, you know, the right tool for the job. So whether it was warmer or colder, um, you know, maybe I was going to get a bigger bike or a shorter bike, or if I was going to take it a little bit farther away from home, something that was a little bit more comfortable. What are we talking here? Are we talking street bikes, dual sports? I've got a, I had a 1995 K75S, I had a 2007 R1200 RT, and then I had a 2009 G650 GS. Mm. So kind of medium size, a little bit bigger than medium and then large. Wow. You, you got a good, you've had the K75 for a long time, haven't you? I did. Yes. Yes. That's, you that's did? been, you know, I did. Yes. I know. I let it go last year, late oh. last year. 
Oh, <laughs> those will be it, one yeah, of those. Still, that, that will be the one that you whine about, you know, 10 years, 20 years down the road. You'll say, I wish I'd never sold the bike. Not necessarily because it's a K75, but just because it, you had it for so long. That's true. Yes. It's still got a special place in my heart. And hopefully the new owner treats it, you know, even as half as good as I did. Uh, well, and I'm sure that uh, David Peterson will be really pleased to hear about this K75 because David Peterson from Best Rest, he, he loves mm-hmm. the K75. But that's that's a side note, a side story. But um, <laughs> anyway, so you're, so you're riding streets, you're not looking for dirt here. Correct. Yeah. I think in the total, if you look at the grand scheme of things, there's about a five mile section of uh, gravel that's considered a state highway in Minnesota. So there wasn't a lot of, of off-roading opportunities at all. So what did you discover? What, what, what did you find that you didn't expect to find? Well, I think just the diversity. You know, again, I had it in my head that Minnesota is boring. It's all flat. There's not much going on. A lot of farming, a little bit of, you know, trees, and that's about it. But it really opened up my eyes of just how amazing, number one, the riding is around here, at least in my perspective. Um, and number two, just the, the vast amount of diversity that we have in a relatively short, you know, kind of geographical area. Mm. How many days are you out on each little leg? Well, you know, I tried to say somewhere between two and three on each leg. Um, but if you if you kind of average up the, the total mileage, and it's, it was about 35,000-ish miles is kind of what I figured that I had spent no um, way. tracing all these, all these roads. 35,000 miles in your home Correct. state. Yep. That's incredible. Yeah. And if you look at the total, we have, I think, the fourth largest um, kind of road system in terms of all of the states or fifth largest in the nation for total road miles. So there's a lot of riding to be done here. Um, I don't know if this was a good thing or a bad thing, but I kind of looked at how many hours it would take an individual to ride those 35,000 miles. And if you averaged 55 miles an hour, which is probably the average speed that most of these roads are at, it's about 645 hours that I spent um, riding that for 26.9 days um, total that I spent riding. And basically it's a weekend thing. Yep. Yep. It really was. Yeah. I, you know, would take off on Friday afternoon and come home, you know, kind of late on Sunday. Was there any point in this where you, you got sort of bored and you thought maybe you're wasting your time? Um, not really. You know, I had this great podcast, Adventure Rider Radio, to keep me kind of company, uh, <laughs> Bluetooth to my headset, majority of the route. So that kept me entertained. Um, and it was really the, just like you're out adventuring anyplace else, it was, you know, what's around the next corner? You know, what's this little town that I've never heard of? What's it going to, you know, really encompass? And who, who lives here? Why would anybody live here? And so it really at no point was I, you know, twiddling my thumbs thinking, oh man, I've got 300 more miles to go yet today. And I'm so bored. Mm-hmm. It always kept me entertained. But, well, and aside from looking for those signs to photograph, did you stop in towns and, and, and check things out? What, what was your, your mode of travel with that? Yeah, I did. You know, I obviously had to stop for a lot of gas throughout. So that was, that was the piece. Um, I'm a big fan of trying to find kind of roadside attractions. So I did see, you know, a lot of big plastic or fiberglass fish because, you know, Minnesota is a big fishing state. So I got to see those, um, you know, every little town has, it's kind of little quirks. We, you know, we have the, the largest ball of twine, um, you know, in North well, I America. I was going to say that as a joke, <laughs> <Yeah>. actually. <laughs> you yeah. actually have the largest ball of twine? We do. Yep. Um, kind of in the middle part of the state, you know, it's, it's the largest ball of twine wrapped by one single individual and it is huge. It, it, it wouldn't be my life's work, but this poor gentleman spent some, some 
many hours, probably more hours than I spend on my motorcycle. I was going to say, clear, clearly he needs a motorcycle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I, I find it surprising when you, when you do that, when you do this sort of a micro adventure and, and you look around, it's surprising um, how much you can find in small areas. Like you go into a little town, for instance, and you'll find they have a, a you know, their, their main street, for instance, and it may be just a very, very tiny section, but it's worthwhile stopping, getting out and checking out just like your, you know, your, your fiberglass fish or your ball of twine or whatever it is. And, and this can be so rewarding for a ride. Right. I mean, you find the best little cafes, you find, you know, the little kind of hidden gems, parks, state parks, et cetera, you know, when you kind of get off the main road and, mm-hmm. and venture into town. So it, it, as I, I said before, it didn't go off without a hitch. You did have your issues. What sort of issues did you have? Sure. Um, well, on the map side, there was a couple different things that I encountered. Um, in the northern part of Minnesota, there was about 11 mile section that I had missed. And of course, I didn't realize this till way later on and in, in, into the ride, probably into August or September. And I had, I was so proud of myself. I had pretty much done a majority of the Northern portion of Minnesota and I had kind of checked it off the list. And then my heart kind of sank as I realized I missed this 11 mile section of, of state road. So I spent one day riding 400 miles up to travel that 11 miles and came right back down so that wasn't one of my better, better moments. Right. That's dedication. You know. Yeah. I also had, um, uh, you know, the, the, the bikes actually performed very, very well, um, throughout the whole thing. I never had any roadside chats with any police officers. Um, you know, nothing left me stranded. Well, that's not I did the have, bike though. That that's you as a rider. Well, hopefully. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did have a, a, an engine bolt that also held onto the crash bar, end up shearing um, basically, of course, in the middle of nowhere. And I'm riding down the freeway or the highway, excuse me, and have my, I happen to have my leg kind of propped up on, on the bar. And all of a sudden it shears off. My leg hits the, the pavement. It flings myself, kind of rotates myself up and over. And I find that my leg is now resting on the saddlebag at wow. 60 miles an hour. Wow. Which I, I probably couldn't rec- you know recreate that a thousand times if I did it over again. Um, so it was very kind of interesting. And I pulled over thinking the worst, thinking, you know, oh man, am I going to be able to pair this? And I, I happened to carry um, something that I called my O bleep kit, and you can fill in in the blank. And that includes things like you know zip ties and and the appropriate wrenches, duct tape, etc. And so I was back on the road in about four or five minutes after I had kind of put this back together, but you know, coming back home for whatever it was, six or seven hours, I was thinking to myself, you know, this engine bolt, it holds on the front part of the engine on the, on the K75. I am going to have to drill that out. I'm going to have to, I might have to, you know, take the, the whole bike to the dealer and have this big, you know, kind of. Cause you're expecting it to be seized. Right. Yeah. I'm yeah. expecting it, you know, that it's, it's not going to come out. There's no way that you could really get to it from the backside. Um, you know, I'm just kind of thinking, oh, this is going to be just one big headache. And then, of course, thinking to myself, how far is this going to put me back, you know, behind in terms of mileage and cost? And I got back home, pulled all the plastic off, and I realized that that other half of the bolt that had broken off had somehow worked its way out and was now, you know, strewn on, on the side of the highway someplace. So I was very fortunate that I didn't have to worry about oh, it. So it came out after know, it broke off. Like after, after you had the incident did. where your foot went flying back, that's a, after that, it fell out. 
Correct. I got so lucky. And, you know, bad. anybody that's written, written a K75, you know, they talk about how smooth the vibration was. Um, so I think the engine, on, at least on this this piece, the engine was very smooth, but maybe the rough roads in Minnesota um, eventually worked it out. What caused the bolt to shear off? That's a great question. Um, I, I honestly have no idea. It's, it's a relatively large bolt as well. Um, you know, the bike hadn't tipped over. I wish I had a better story to say, oh, I, you know, I was avoiding a bear at 80 miles an hour and I, I you know, happened to hit a rock as I jumped the, uh, the highway or something. But it just was probably a metal fatigue. Mm, yeah, that's scary. I mean, it, it turned out great. You know, it's just an, a, a good story to tell. But yeah, it could have been something completely different. You almost, um, you almost hit a wolf. I did. Um, that was also a, a time when, you know, it really woke me up. Um, I was traversing in, in northeastern Minnesota and kind of in the middle of just a, a blanket forest. There really wasn't anything else going around there. Forest on both sides of the road. Um, I was well away from, from any kind of city or town. And in the blip of a second, I see this flash that comes up from the left side of the road. That ditch crosses over right in front of me to the point where if I was maybe three or four seconds faster, I probably would have collided with it. And then, mm-hmm. you know, proceeded to, to basically run down into the, the other section of the road into the ditch. And, you know, for a, a couple seconds afterwards, I, I was thinking to myself, did I just see something? Was that all just made up in my mind? Because it was so fast. And I was thinking, you know, there's no farms around here. There's no houses, you know, was it somebody's dog? And then I started to realize, well, my headlight on the, I was running the K75 once again, you know, it's a good 40 some inches or so. I ended up measuring it actually at the end to say, well, this was at the top of that. And of course, again, I went back to my friend Google and started realizing that Minnesota actually has the most amount of wolves um, in the 48 lower states. And only Alaska actually has more wolves than any other place. And so, yeah, I was thinking, well, it could be, maybe it was a big coyote or maybe it was, it was, uh, you know, somebody's dog. And I thought to myself, okay, you know, after, after really reading up on it, I said, nope, what I saw was a wolf. And really what I actually saw was just a blur of, of, uh, fur, you know, and, and gray at yeah. 60 miles an hour. But yeah, it was quite interesting. Rushing across the road. So th- this was at night? No, this was in two o'clock in the afternoon. Oh, I see. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and that is one of those reminders for us as riders, just how fast things can happen. And it's totally out of your control because something can be right in the ditch there and pop out just as it did there and end up hitting you. And at nighttime, that's when it becomes so much worse because wildlife is more active. Wildlife tends to be more active at dusk and dawn, but deer in particular get sort of habituated to the sides of roads. And um, I, always, I always say with, with deer, one thing you want to watch as you're coming up is the position of the deer. If the deer is facing the road, if it bolts, it's going to bolt in that direction. If it's got its butt towards the road, if it's going to bolt, it's likely, likely going to bolt in that direction. So it's a little safer to go by the deer that's facing away. But if that deer is facing the road, whatever it is, whatever the animal is, that's when you really need to pay attention. Absolutely. And I saw we have a, a high population of white-tailed deer here in Minnesota as well. And, oh, I, I, I probably could have counted, but I probably saw hundreds of deer um, throughout the rides. Very, you know, very lucky that I never really got really that close. Um, I did have one that just was trotting along the road in, in northern Minnesota once again for probably 150 yards or so. And I'm honking my horn, traveling at, you know, maybe we're going two or three miles an hour saying, get out of my way, you know. <laughs> 
Um, one thing I've always, you know, you also find at least with whitetail is they always have friends. So yeah. if you see one, there's probably more that, that are along with it as well. Yeah, that's a very good point. And, th- and that's what I do. The moment that I spot a deer, I'm looking for the other deer that are with this because you can bet that that one has, has others that are standing around. So yeah, very good point. Uh, you, you were camping on this trip, were you? I was. Yep. So I tried to, you know, try to stay, um, kind of doing this as inexpensive as possible as most people do when they're out adventuring. Um, so I spent a majority of my time in different state parks throughout Minnesota. How did you end up having one all to yourself, a state park? Well, it's actually the smallest. If you look on the, on the state map of Minnesota, there's one state park that's really, it's just right off the road in Northern Minnesota, um, kind of outside of the town called Baudette. And it's the smallest state park in Minnesota as well. So I had pulled in and there was actually a couple other campers there at about 7 p.m. or so, kind of set everything up. I went to the local gas station, got a couple things, filled up the bike and then came back. And for whatever reason, at nine o'clock, um, my fellow campers decided to, they didn't want to spend the night. So they packed up and they left. Hmm. That, that so, could be kind of unnerving. <laughs> it it <laughs> was a little why. bit. Yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I did go back to double check to make sure that I hadn't missed any signs about, you know, there's a large activity of bears or anything yeah, in the exactly. area. Um, and so, yeah, I, uh, I did, I wouldn't say I slept really well that night, but uh, <laughs> I did get a little bit of sleep. So Tom, you have ridden every single mile of every highway in Minnesota. Correct. Yep. So, I mean, the only, the only one that would have done it before you, and it probably wasn't one person, would be Google. That's probably true. Yeah, when they went out and mapped everything. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm sure there's, there might be some Minnesota Department of Transportation individuals that have probably logged, you know, a significant amount of miles. Um, but I'm not sure that they went to every single road like I did. Wow. That's incredible. And what a, what a great way to... Um, to make up an adventure, you know, and, and stay close to home, work within your boundaries. You know, as you said, you've got work to deal with during the week. You've got your weekends free. So instead of thinking that you can't do a trip that's interesting, you spent, what was that? Was it, was that a full summer? Yep. It was a full summer. So I think I started in the middle part of April and then ended in the first part of November. Yeah. What a, what a great way to do it. And you didn't get anybody to go with you though. You're by yourself. Yeah, I was by myself a majority of the time. Every once in a while, my wife, my wife would come along. Um, you know, most of the time there was ice cream or a, a breakfast involved. Um, but pretty much, it was by myself. What do you mean? You're bribing your wife to go on the bike with you? I, I don't like to call it that, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> enticing maybe. <laughs> is, is there anything else that you wanted to tell us about this story? Um, you know, just basically that. Again, you know, I spent a majority of my life kind of thinking adventure was far away. And after doing this ride, I thought, well, you know, you can still have a great adventure and still be relatively close to home and show up to work on Monday morning. So don't discount yourself, even though it might not feel like you're doing thousands of miles of traveling halfway around the world, but you can still have a lot of fun and see a lot of great things close to home. Well, Tom, that's great. Thank you very much because you've inspired me as well because it gets me thinking now, hey, I can do something like this right around here. And, And this is, like I say, a time when I think we can all um, we can all use some ideas like that. Tom, great to talk to you once again. Thank you very much. And thank you so very much, Jim. Appreciate it.
That was Tom Rick from his home in Rochester, Minnesota. Tom is, a, is an exercise specialist for the Mayo Clinic, but as a rider, he's now ridden every single highway in his home state, Minnesota, um, as an adventure, as an adventure close to home. Kind of gets you thinking to, as to what sort of challenge you could make for yourself, no matter how close you have to or, or want to stick to home. Now, we've got some great photos from Tom's adventure in the show notes for this episode, at one at least of the world's largest ball of string wound by one person or, or was that twine yeah i think it was twine anyway have a look at our website adventureriderradio.com and um, maybe now you should uh, plan a ride with a purpose as well we had tom on um, some time ago and he gave us motorcycle specific exercises for riders to strengthen your muscles but also to build and maintain flexibility and it's some really interesting stuff that he shared with us about flexibility and how it changes as you get older and why it changes. So we're going to put a link to that episode in the show notes for this one. So you can drop by our website. And uh, if you have any trouble finding the episode, you could probably just search for Tom uh, or Tom Rick. Uh, Tom is, by the way, T-H-O-M. We're going to take a short break so I can tell you about a couple of things. Stay with us because when we come back six times around the world, a lifetime of adventure motorcycling, some advice, stories, and more. Stay with us. So yesterday I'm standing out um, holding my bike up, balancing it actually is what I was doing. I was was taking Jimmy Lewis's instruction from uh, one of our rider skills segments a while back when he was talking about balance and walking around and balancing your bike and really working on the fine details of it. (laughs) And while I'm doing it, because you're, you're just standing there with your bike and it's not running or anything, I'm looking around my bike and thinking, my bike's showing a lot of signs of wear. There's a lot of spots on this that, well, say adventure happened here is I guess one way to say it. That's my way of saying it. But the one spot that doesn't, is my IMS foot pegs. The, the the part that probably gets beat, well, maybe not the most, but darn close to being the most, well, maybe the most, well, you know, when the bike gets dropped, not that I drop it, don't get me wrong, but when it does, it's, you know, the pegs take a slamming. Um, when I cut too close in by rocks or go into some tight stuff, it's the pegs that take some slamming and it's those pegs that look the best, but it's not looks, it's performance. IMS foot pegs, Keep your feet where they're supposed to be. They support your feet in the way they're supposed to. And why? It's no surprise. IMS has been around for 40 years, I think, something like that. It's it's always run by people who are heavily into motorcycles and they're heavy in the race industry. So they know what they're doing. And they've been doing it for a long time, since 1976, I think is the date they started at. They make a full uh, set, or full line rather, of adventure motorcycle foot pegs. No matter what you ride, you should be able to find something for most bikes you have everything from a large platform with the the ADV1 and ADV2 pegs right on down to smaller pegs with more aggressive teeth. And foot pegs are one of, in my opinion, it's going to be one of your best improvements that you make to your bike. IMSproducts.com is the website. Anytime you're talking with them, let them know that you heard it here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. Greg Fraser has been around the world six times by motorcycle. Now, it wasn't because he planned to do it. He wasn't setting a record. He didn't try and break a record. But as a true adventure motorcyclist or maybe traveler, it's because it just happened. It just turned out that way that he's been around the world six times. During that time, he's also been a writer and an author of motorcycle books, really for the past 50 years or so. Written numerous articles, countless articles, really, and I think 16 or 18 books or something like that. 
So today he's got some stories, maybe some advice, certainly some lessons on adventure motorcycling that he's experienced over those years. And he also has a new book out. We're going to talk about all that coming up. My name is Gregory Frazier. Some people call me Dr. G. Um, that's my handle. Uh, I'm from uh, Yelltail, Montana, and I'm a writer and uh, globetrotter, kind of a, a loony out there, uh, moto loco, whatever you want to call it. I've been at the, the game of motorcycling for over 50 years, and uh, I'm still in love with it. Greg, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Uh, it's good to be back, Jim. You know, you realize you were one of the original guests when we started the show back in 2014. Uh, I think I was told that when I was down in South America, some guy had listened to one of the early uh, shows and said, hey, uh, I just listened to you on uh, Adventure Rider Radio podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's been a long time. And I know we've had you on since then. Um, you, um, you, you said Dr. G is your handle. What is, what is Are you really a doctor? I'm not a physician. Uh, I tell people I've got a PhD on the survival of the roads around the world. Uh, but by training, I'm an economist. Oh, so you have a PhD as an economist. You didn't buy it on the internet. <laughs> I should have bought it on the internet. I could, I, I could have bought something more exotic. It's true. You could have went for the medical one, but that has to get you in trouble, though, being called Dr. G. I mean, if there's some sort of medical emergency and somebody says, hey, we've got Dr. G right here. Uh, I'm gifted in that I could probably perform a roadside surgery with my Leatherman given a very <laughs> limited uh, field, uh, maybe a, a hangnail removal, um, maybe a circumcision. Right. So you've got some skills there. That's uh, that makes sense. Hey, you, you've, um, you said you've been into motorcycling for 50 years. What got you into riding? Escapism. I wanted to get away from my parents and the Quaker institution they had boarded me in. And where does that switch to becoming a writer, like sort of making it a profession? Well, now I went down a different road. I, you know, I went down the road of academia and I was a corporate pooch for a number of years. Um, you know, I still got the suits hanging in the closet with the monogrammed French cuffs and the ties and the tie clips. But uh, after uh, about 15, 20 years of that, I said, you know, there's got to be another way to, to get through life. And, um, and so I stepped out of a very comfortable life of uh, uh, the corporate world uh, with the expense account and um, new car every couple of years and the home mortgage and decided to become a uh, writer, uh, journalist and uh, adventurist using two wheels. Okay, but why motorcycles in particular? Well, motorcycles had become my number one goal in life. I loved them. I raced them. I restored them. I bought them. I sold them. Um, to uh, afford that, uh, I had to work. And uh, I found that I could work as a journalist, spin words, uh, not only in the motorcycling world. I had other outlets um, for my works. But... Um, 
eventually I realized it wasn't going to pay the full nut, um, given my overhead at the time. And I, I had to keep paring back overhead. And obviously I had to make some choices in life. Like I think right now the cost of raising a child and getting them through a, a four-year university is about a million dollars. And I don't have any children. Uh, I don't have a dog. I don't have a cat. Uh, those are luxury items that some people would put way ahead of a motorcycle life. What's life uh, about for you right now? Is it totally motorcycle? I'm still heavily involved in motorcycles. Um, day after tomorrow, I leave for a 1,500-mile um, social distancing trip. Uh, I'm going solo up through Wyoming and parts of Montana, maybe as far over as um, South Dakota. Uh, it'll be a seven to 10 day trip. Um, the, uh, social distancing part is I, I go solo on most of these adventures and, uh, um, I, I really kind of like the, uh, the fact that I'm out there alone, um, uh, dealing with problems that I find on the road with my motorcycles or, um, barriers that it are, are in front of me that I have to get around. Um, last month when I went to, uh, it wasn't last month, I think it was late May, I was faced with a barrier of a 14-day quarantine in my little town of uh, about 50 people now, 42 miles from town. And uh, I was lucky enough uh, or wise enough to uh, uh, get to the barrier as they were disassembling it on a Sunday afternoon to take down the 14-day quarantine. So I, I didn't have to sit in my house alone uh, for the 14 days. Um, I skirted it by uh, getting off in the interstates, um, not as a matter of purpose. I just chose to go the little secondary route and ended up uh, on a back road where they were, like I said, disassembling it to, to stop the 14-day quarantine. What Was that of your town? They were quarantining your town or is this just because you came from overseas? No, it's because I came from out of state. Uh, uh, the state of Mo the state of Montana was uh, making those that came in uh, quarantine themselves for fourteen days. Mm, yeah, absolutely crazy times. Hey, six times around the world. Uh, you know, why would you do six times around the world? I'm, I'm assuming they're all different routes. All different routes and all different ways. In general, I'll say the first one was I got lost. Um, I was out doing uh, films, video productions of a motorcycle on the best highways in the world. And by happenstance, I, I circled the globe while I was chasing roads. It wasn't a plan. And then the second one was really a plan. I had a route laid out. Uh, the third one was, uh, well, let's see how I can do it differently. And uh, then uh, the fourth one was a challenge. I'd prepared a motorcycle for a magazine that was supposed to be ready to go around the world. and. One of my friends said, walk your talk. I mean, you've written five articles about this preparation. Now go out and show us that you're right. Uh, so that was a five-month uh, five trip around the world, which included uh, oh, a, a long shot across the eight time zones of Russia. And then the, sixth, uh, uh, the fifth trip was uh, the lady who had Parkinson's who wanted to uh, live her dream uh, before the Parkinson's uh, beat her up so badly that she couldn't. And so I packed her on the back of a motorcycle, actually five different ones, and we circled the globe for 14 months and about, uh, I think it was 30,000 miles. 
And then the sixth one was uh, a, a fat cat who uh, wanted to be a, an adventure motorcyclist and uh, hired me to uh, shepherd him. Uh, he'd watched the, the, the DVDs and he'd read a couple of books and he thought he could move from a collector to an adventure rider of uh, global fame. Uh, unfortunately, uh, he was not uh, mentally equipped to uh, carry on after the uh, stress of uh, what I'll call a worrisome uh, overcame his uh, adventure spirit and he packed it up and went home. Uh, I was about, we were about uh, two thirds of the way around the world on that trip. And I was committed. I'd carved out the time and told my, um, magazine editors and uh, book editors that I wasn't going to be available during that time. And I, I dug into my, uh, savings and, and completed that six trip around the world on my own. So there's the sixth trip in a real quick nutshell. So th this guy that you just talked about now, he, he's in this latest book that you have. Uh, not by name, uh, but uh, some of the articles uh, were based on my experiences with him. The book that we're talking about um, is Adventure Motorcyclist Fraser Shrugged um, by you, Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. What What is it? Describe the book. Well, the book is an esoteric book about how adventure motorcycling is perceived in the 21st century. Let's start with the, the recognition that motorcycle riders have been adventuring since the first guy threw a leg over that wooden job that they built in Germany. Um, uh, Carl Stearns Clancy uh, and his buddy started on a trip around the world in 1912 on a uh, one-speed seven horsepower, four cylinder, 1300 cc Henderson motorcycle. They didn't have any front brake and um, had no suspension. Uh, his adventure um, took him 10 months and uh, about 20,000 miles around the world. So the, the, the adventure of circumnavigating the globe or leaving your soft comfort zone of Kansas uh, has been in the spirit of motorcyclists for well over 100 years. It's morphed. And the, the concept of the book, uh, Adventure Motorcyclist, Treasure Shrugged, was to take a look at how it's perceived today uh, and how we've been looking at it for the last 35 years, as, as I have, as a columnist that was uh, hired to give my opinion on adventure motorcycling, whether it was out of country or in country. Um, but but those those early motorcycles and the early motorcyclists, actually, in, even including Ted Simon, they weren't really motorcyclists uh, as we look at it today. They were more, I guess what I'm trying to say is the motorcycle was more like a tool back then, and now it's become something else. Uh, Clancy certainly wasn't a mechanic, uh, and Ted readily admits neither was he. Um they were tools, and I look at them as tools in my toolbox as I've made these trips around the world. Maybe a more sophisticated tool, obviously much more um, expensive um, in a relative sense, and depending on your choice of motorcycles. Uh, one, of the, one of the chapters in the book is what is today the best choice for the adventure motorcyclist um, or the adventure motorcycle. I have one chapter called the um, ultimate adventure motorcycle. 
Um, I have another one entitled the best round the world adventure motorcycle. And then another chapter about big motorcycles versus little motorcycles. Uh, they're all tools and depending on your outlook uh, and your, your budget, um, you can afford the top of the line tool or, uh, you can go the budget route. I, I've done both. Um, the, um, options today, it's a wonderful, wonderful, um, sphere of options that we have as adventure motorcyclists in the market today. It's just a matter of money. Um, you can enter with a brand new adventure motorcycle at about the $5,000 US dollar uh, price range on a brand new, pretty well equipped motorbike. And uh, then you can go up to the, let's say $25,000, $30,000 range uh, for a, an adventure badged motorcycle. That said, uh, as discussed in the book, you really don't have to buy an adventure badged or adventure marketed motorcycle to have an adventure. Um, my first adventures were on a 305 Honda Superhawk. That's 305 cc's. That's not a big motorcycle in today's world, American world of, of motorcycle adventures uh, models. Uh, and I had wild adventures on a 1945 Indian chief now that was never marketed as a adventure motorcycle but i look back on those trips i took and adventures i had and said uh that definitely was a, an adventure motorcycle uh you, you mentioned motorcycles i mean we we talk about that a lot on this show about um, any motorcycle that, that you love is going to be the bike for you i mean um You've got friends that have, have ridden Dave Barr, for instance, um, riding a, a non-adventure motorcycle. Um, he had a, you know he had a lot of challenges to overcome with that ride. So certainly any bike will do if you have the enthusiasm. But but you said like the book is is sort of talking about where where motorcycling is, where adventure motorcycling is. It's it's a collection of essays though, isn't it? Because each chapter is a story in itself. There's I think it's eighty four chapters or stories. Uh, they were called from uh, opinions expressed over a 25-year period about this niche of adventure motorcycling. And uh, all of them were published at one time or another, but they, they some of them became dated. So with the help of a really great um, content editor, Paul H. Smith, who's the senior editor for ADV Moto Magazine, um, he and I sifted through a lot of um, old stuff, rejected stuff that was um, columns or uh, essays that were really not applicable to today and came up with uh, what's in the book, which is about 350 pages, uh, 84 chapters, if you want to call them, uh, looking at and laughing at myself and others um, and some of the experiences that we've had in this niche as it grew from a very small niche. Um, I think uh, when Dave made his trip around the world, it, the word adventure motorcycling was very seldom used. It was travel um, and, and motorcycles. Uh, today, uh, and one chapter I devote to this, uh, there is a, an immense amount of uh, marketing put behind the word adventure to sell us uh, on the concept of adventure. Um, maybe it's the spirit of um, human kind in this 
21st century, but I've seen um, adventure golf. I've seen adventure adventure dollar shopping yeah. at the you know Dollar General store. I've seen adventure gardening. Um, in our motorcycle niche, they sell adventure underwear, adventure gloves, adventure helmets, adventure boots um, to, to hook us on the concept of um, adventure as it's morphed uh, from a high risk uh, pursuit to more of a um, um, meet your dream well, that's sort of was what I was saying when I'm talking about the motorcycle being a tool, because, you know, you're talking about like when Dave Barr went, the, the motorcycle was, it was a tool for travel. It was you traveling with a bike. The bike, I don't know, has it really mattered that much um, back in the day, but now adventure motorcycling has become, I think, more about the bike and the gear. Well, there's, there's certainly the idea of, I've got to look like the adventure motorcyclist that many motorcycle travelers want to have, um, the joiners, whatever you want to call them, uh, want to have that image, uh, that they project, uh, that they're the, uh, you know, the kerosene breath, iron, um, rider out there pursuing, the adventure through the jungles or deserts or over the mountains of the world. Um, you know, that, that look is what a lot of us buy, I, and I've been subject to it. I've purchased, in my book, I tell about, I purchased a, a box of uh, six bolts that were marketed as adventure bolts. And that, that, that word adventure was on the package, and then underneath uh, the, the plastic cover that held the six bol bolts, they had the word the car. And I forget what I paid for them, two or three dollars, and I took them out, and I looked at them, Jim, there was no jingling of, of my jimmies when I held them uh, that, that indicated these were adventure bolts. They were simply bolts. <laughs> it's true. I mean, you come across things, things that are packaged up and, and two things side by side, and one's the regular version, one's the adventure version. Of course, you're going to spend the extra money and, and get the adventure version, but very likely you are, uh, you're not getting much difference. No, uh, a bolt is a bolt. Maybe be hardened, or maybe metric, or uh, uh, something unique to it. But I, I really couldn't. I, 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 you know, I bought it out of interest. What is an adventure bolt? And I found out it's just a bolt. <laughs> you, you cover a lot of things in this book. You mentioned somebody already that you. I would say dist in a way because you're you're mocking him a little bit. The collector who went on the trip and decided that he he wasn't going to going to, going to go any further. Do you ever worry about that with with the book? Because I read through here and I know like I don't know the guy's name, but I I know who you're talking about when you referred to him just now. He is going to read it and know exactly who he is. You ever worry about that? No, not really. Uh, remember, the columns have already been published before, so uh, the context and the uh, personalities and uh, the, it, it's all been vetted. Uh, I don't worry about, uh, you know, he, he can't argue with the, my opinion of, of, you know, him rabbiting home to Kansas. You know, that's my opinion. He ran like a rabbit. Um, and, and it, it really was not, uh, him. I, I've had others that have cashed out and said, no, I can't do it. I don't have it. I, you know, I thought I did. I watched the DVD. I thought I could be like that. And 
I really can't afford it uh, or I um, I can't face the stress. I was with another fellow one time uh, on a, his trip uh, across Europe and Russia when our first day into Russia, uh, he experienced what I consider to be a minor mechanical problem. But to him, it was a stress factor that he couldn't deal with for the rest of the trip uh, across Russia. So he turned around and went back to uh, his home in America. So what were you doing? You guiding trips at that point? At that point, he uh, stepped up and said, I will pay for you to get me across Russia. And I guaranteed him that uh, I would get him across Russia, even if he died in Russia. I would burn him on the side of the road with my gasoline and send his ashes back to America from west to east. So he would have gone across Russia. Um, but, um, our deal was he was to pay for, uh, all the expenses for us. And there were actually three of us. Uh, he, he paid for another fellow that's kind of like his, uh, psychologist, um, his, um, his fellow traveler that he's comfortable with. Let's look at, a, at some of the stories, give people an idea of, of what's in the book. Um, what, what would be one that would, you know, jump out to you that you could tell us? I I always like the one about when I met uh, Hunter Thompson the first time. And, uh, okay, uh, first, uh, first you're gonna have to start by because t- not everybody's gonna know who Hunter Thompson is. That's true. Uh, Doctor Gonzo uh, is from my era. Uh, probably the Generation Z today won't know who he was, but he was a wild man. Um, the uh, Rolling Stone magazine had him on the masthead for years. I think it's a sports editor or something like that, but a very famous uh, way out there journalist who had an inclination towards motorcyclists, uh, motorcycles and um, uh, made himself famous uh, as, as a writer journalist uh, in his niche, which was uh, gonzo journalism. Uh, he lived up in Aspen, Colorado and, uh, I ended up uh, volunteering to take a motorcycle battery up to his place with a buddy of mine. And, and uh, that was the first time I met him was uh, he, he walked out of the house. We were parked. We were just pulled up and I'd gotten off my 47 Indian chief that I thought he, he, he would think was pretty cool given who he was. And my buddy was on a K75 BMW and I was carrying the, the battery up to the front porch where his assistant was standing. She'd said, oh, yeah, Hunter's asleep now. He's not available. Just leave it on the porch. And uh, it was like two or three o'clock in the afternoon. And he wasn't asleep. He, he stumbled out the, the front door and he, he was carrying this cannon. Hey, it wasn't a 44 Magnum. It was like a, a 50 caliber Magnum. Uh, he was obviously drunk he was stumbling and he was waving this gun around saying hey can't you guys read the you know the bling 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 sign down there at the entrance to my place you know get out of here you autograph seekers you you scum and yell at us and i i put the battery in the back porch and started uh, on the front porch and started to back up uh and my buddy tried to hide behind the windscreen on his k75 which is about six inches by 10 inches um and he backed up I got the Indian turned around and Thompson standing there on the, you know, looking at us. And he comes off the front porch as I get my Indian rolled around and I kick it once and it didn't start. And I thought, Oh, I'm dead. He's going to kill me. Uh, and he looked at my Indian and he said, nice Harley. 
And to this, to this day, I don't know if he was spoofing me or uh, didn't, couldn't tell the difference between an Indian chief and a Harley Davidson, but it started on the second kick. I put it in gear and my buddy and I met down the road and he was shaking and I was shaking you know, a mile, two miles away from Hunter's place. And my buddy said, as he lifted up his face shield, he said, I told you last night we should have taken drugs before we kept, came all the way up here to meet Thompson. You know, Th Thompson's eyeballs were coming out of his head. And I said, well, <laughs> okay. He, maybe he stuck his finger in an electric guy, light socket or something, but he was definitely on something. And But uh, it was it was an adventure. Why? Uh, because he has a reputation of being a wild guy? You ever looked a, a 50 caliber handgun? Well, that's in hindsight. Boy, you, didn't expect to see that. you wouldn't, you probably wouldn't have taken the battery. <laughs> <laughs> no, he was a, he, uh, yeah, yeah. It, it was a, definitely not a planned adventure to be looking at the, the barrel of a gun. Um, fun, funny enough, I, I met him about a week or two later uh, in the bar, the Jerome Cafe, the Jerome Hotel in the, uh, Aspen, I was up there on another project and uh, I was at the urinal in, in the men's room and it, it was a one urinal men's room. And he, he stumbled in. I, I knew him right off, you know, who he was and he could see the urinal was busy. So he unzipped and started to uh, pass water into the sink. And uh, he, he was so drunk, he was holding one hand against the wall and the other hand on his, on his uh, junk to uh, spread water all over the wall and his shoes. And I, I was backing away, zipping up, and he said, don't I know you? <laughs> and I, I didn't want to say, oh, yeah, we met a couple of weeks ago when you <laughs> pointed that cannon at me and called my Indian chief a Harley. Uh, <laughs> so in this book, with all these chapters, like with stories like this, there always seems to be a um, sort of moment of reflection at the end of it where I, I guess it's almost like lessons in there. There's tips that I've given uh, to the reader. There's lessons of uh, uh, based on my experience and those of others. Um, I think uh, so, some readers uh, will see themselves and they'll say, aha, I remember that uh, same situation and, and I know exactly what he's talking about. Others will look at that at a, at a chapter and, and really dislike it because they'll see themselves uh, and say, oh, he's captured me, and that's not really a tasteful guy that he's captured. Um, or view. It, or view, absolutely. <laughs> but as a critic, I'm probably my own most difficult and hardest critic of my works. Uh, I really don't, don't know anybody else that disses me harder than myself, because when I look back at some of the works that I've done, I thought, well, maybe that fit the time, but now... Uh, where was my head? Um, uh, what I've given is uh, 85 looks at what I thought about adventure motorcycling. And in the end, I just shrug. Um, I said, well, we each have our own. Um, but this is how I saw it at certain times over the last 35 years. Well, one one of the um, chapters was about, you talked about a, a guy who did some research and um, into the inability of people to rate themselves accurately. Can you talk about that one? That was a um, Cornell University professor, uh, and it's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. And he made a study of, of people and how they perceive themselves 
uh, and the conclusion was that uh, some of us are so ignorant that we're not able to realize how ignorant we are because we don't have the skill set to analyze the ignorance data. Well, let me give you an example. Some people were asked to uh, rate themselves on their um, um, capacity to, to play a game, for instance. And they would always rate themselves way above how they'd scored in that game. They didn't know what their score was. And they said, oh, well, I got a 95 on the on, – my, my guess is I got a 95 on the score of that game when, in fact, they got a 20. Uh, so then I have to ask the – the ignorant question of how does this relate to motorcycling? Well, there's those of us that think we can be an adventure motorcyclist like the collector. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he was so ignorant of what it was to be out there that once he faced it, uh, Jim, I could smell stress on him every day. It oozed off of him. He was fine in America, but as soon as we hit Columbia, uh, his fear factor went into the red zone and uh, he was so afraid of what was out there. He'd read a book about some guy being captured in the jungles and he was sure that that was all of Colombia. Um, he, he was so ignorant of the fact that that situation, whether it was true or false, had taken place years before. And we were staying at the Marriott Hotel in Bogota with security guards, but he would only venture around the block and he wanted to get out of Bogota and out of Colombia as quickly as we could. He was so ignorant of what had transpired in the way of um, guerrilla and government relations in Colombia and drug cartels over the previous 10 or 15 years uh, that he was stuck in that mode uh, of, a, of a book uh, and whatever research he had done about the perception of what Columbia was on the, in, in the year we were there, which I think was 2017. This also goes into other areas of motorcycling, though, too. I mean, the, I think you said it, it's called Dunning's-Kruger effect. It, it's the same thing you, you find where somebody overestimates their ability with cornering on the street or maybe with riding off-road. It's all, all those type of things. And as a matter of fact, according to what you were saying about this, this research is it's kind of everybody, isn't it? Yes. I think we all uh, want to think that we're more than we actually are. Uh, and that's why I say I laugh at myself every morning, Jim. I, I look in the mirror when I'm shaving and I laugh and I say to myself, you're still here. <laughs> you again? <laughs> yeah. I mean, look back at me. I just laugh. It's, um, I never expected to, in, in the pursuits that I followed, which was motorcycling racing, for instance. I remember when I started racing, my, uh, my uh, instructor, I'll call him my mentor, my adopted father said, I, I'm not going to waste any time on you if you have fear of crashing or dying. Um, you're going to go out and you're going to race motorcycles. And to race motorcycles, these factors aren't supposed to be part of the equation of winning. And we're going to win motorcycle races. And after uh, two years, we did win motorcycle uh, races uh, successfully. Um, but um, the fear factor had to be removed from the equation. Mm, which is not something we want to do for regular riding. And, and I think that's what why this 
again, that's why I was saying it, but the, the, with the chapters, they, they sort of have a, a point, you know, some sort of life lesson in there. This chapter in itself, to me, talks about um, our overestimating our skills, you know, be it on the road or be it off road. And it's sort of a precautionary tale that we're all susceptible to this. You've got a, uh, a chapter on adventure advice, which caught my eye because you called it adventure. <laughs> so, so give us some of that advice. Well, quickly, number one, I think is you have to uh, be prepared for whatever is going to be thrown at you. Um, it's not a, uh, I, uh, I want to take the uh, example of like the adventure touring package that one of my friends was sold. Um, he thought that this was, as marketed, going to be the adventure of a lifetime. When he came back, he said, I could have done that uh, on my own. I, I didn't need to pay the $6,000 to, to, to go do that. Uh, and it was because he underestimated his ability to survive outside of his culture of Kansas, for instance, versus uh, once he got out of, out of Kansas, he realized, hey, I can do this. And, you know, being in uh, uh, Peru wasn't that tough or going through Canada, um, Mexico, for instance, um, a piece of advice would be not to, uh, uh, be afraid of the barriers, but try to, uh, manage in your head before you get to the barrier, what you can do. You also talked about, um, some of the common things that people worry about. I think getting lost was included in there, breaking down. Some people worry about those things to the point where they don't go. Um, I kind of, I've reached a point in my life where I kind of enjoy dealing with the, the barrier of being lost. You know, if you're not on a time clock and you don't have a destination, being lost can be a lot of fun. And breaking down? Again, uh, I kind of strive on the uh, ability to, to fix it, uh, to get on down the road. I don't like to break down, but when I've broken down, um, even hurt myself significantly. Uh, I, I've always managed to, to <laughs> crawl on down the road or, or get down the road. That's why I say I, I look in the mirror every morning and laugh. You're still here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember when I broke my leg in the middle of the Navajo reservation. Uh, it, they used that photo on the cover of that book uh, about uh, uh, my uh, adventures around the world and how I I call it uh, how I became a, a motorcycle adventure junkie. But I was out there on a sand track with no cell phone, no sat phone, no partner, uh, about 20 miles from the nearest, oh, let's say, no, it was, I think it was 10 miles to the next telephone. Um, and I, when I fell down, I broke my leg and I knew it was broken. Um, and I sat there for an hour waiting for somebody to come along and it didn't happen. There was no... Uh, even if I'd had a cell phone, I don't think there was a cell tower that would connect because at the trading post that I passed on the way into uh, Gallup, New Mexico, uh, they had pay phones on the wall um, for people to use with uh, calling cards. I think it's remote enough. But I managed, uh, you know, it took, it, it took me about an hour to offload all the stuff on my motorcycle and get it upright and then pack it up again with a broken leg and, and then get myself on the motorcycle and on down the sand track. Uh, but it was a challenge. And I look back on it now and said, okay, I, I can see where I 
I screwed up uh, that day, but uh, had I known that was out there, I, I probably would have done it anyway. Well, I think for most activities nowadays, they, they tell us that you, you should be doing it with other people. I mean, that's the, no matter what activity you look at nowadays, is one of the first things that they tell you to do, whether you're canoeing or kayaking or, or, or biking or, or motorcycling into a, a remote place. And otherwise, a satellite uh, transmitter would have helped you in there as well. <laughs> Greg, always fun to talk. Thanks very much. Jim, uh, always, and uh, I look forward to uh, listening to the rest of your shows in the future. Keep on doing what you're doing. I'm, I'm happy you're out there, and I wish you all the success. That was Greg Frazier, or Dr. G, as he's known, from his office in Denver, Colorado. Now, much of what we were talking about today is in Greg's new book called Adventure Motorcyclist Fraser Shrugged. Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer Elizabeth Martin and of course to you, the listener. Thank you very much for being a part of this. Hey, if you have any ideas for shows or you've got a story yourself, we would love to hear from you. Drop by our website AdventureRiderRadio.com and you'll find a spot there to submit your ideas, submit your stories. We would love to hear from you. Also, now the show is built on a model of advertising and listener support which means that we need you as a listener. If you're enjoying the show, you like what you're hearing, you like what you're getting every week, we need you to step up and become a patron supporter or support the show in some way. Anyway, visit our website, click on support. And don't forget that we have ARR Raw. We do that as a monthly show that comes out as a separate feed. You need to subscribe separately. Adventure Rider Radio Raw roundtable discussions about motorcycle travel and everything else. So drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com and see what we've got. Now, don't forget to look at the show notes for this episode. We've got links in there where you can get Greg Fraser's book. And we also have the, the pictures of Tom's story drop by the website, adventureriderradio.com. My name's Jim Martin. Now it's time to get over there and ride your bike if you can do it. Thank you very much for listening. Talk to you next week. Hi, this is Teach McNeil, and you are listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 